Welcome back, everybody, to The Luke Beasley Show. Before we jump into today's news, let me just remind you to be subscribed to the podcast, drop a five-star rating and some sort of review. That would be greatly appreciated. Now let's jump in. The brutal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine by Russia continues every single day with pain and suffering unnecessarily being uh, brought onto people in mass. And one of the big takeaways from what we've been witnessing is from the perspective of Russia, now to be clear, no matter what, this war could not turn out good. There's nothing good about it. But from the perspective of Russia, it's actually going very poorly. And so from all of our perspectives, it's going well within the context of a war because Ukraine is standing a lot stronger and Russia is not making the gains and accomplishing the goals that they had likely set out beforehand. And that's good news, even though we have to recognize there is carnage and pain every single day. So I want to be super clear. What we're about to go over is an analysis of this as a war and this as a clash between two forces. And one that is within the context of expectations that Russia within weeks would be able to accomplish the goals they had set out, would be able to take over much of Ukraine. And we just have not seen that happen. That doesn't mean, however, they have not caused massive carnage. So before we talk about why and how this war is not going well for Russia, which as I mentioned is good news. And we're going to look into the specifics of that. I first just want to uh, identify and recognize the most important part of all of this, which is the lives being lost unnecessarily. So you can see in this chart and you have to be so clear on this. This is a massive underestimate. Every single group that has come out to try to give us estimates on the death toll from the Russian invasion of Ukraine has said, listen, this is what we can confirm, but there's likely thousands upon thousands of uh, more deaths that we just haven't been able to confirm. Um, and we'll be learning about, about that as this goes on. And hopefully someday in retrospect, once this is all over, um, we'll probably get all of the truth. But as of now, reported deaths based on location you can see in this chart, total 10,000 470. 10,000 people in Ukraine died. Thousands upon thousands of civilians, obviously Ukrainian soldiers. And you can see here it's primarily happening in the east portion of Ukraine. And if you are watching right now, obviously podcast listeners can't see this, but it shows the larger red dots are where the most carnage has happened. And those are in particular cities where there's been a lot of clashing, a lot of fighting. So as we analyze a situation like war, we can't become oblivious or numb to the carnage that is being caused. But with that being said, let's look into this fact that I previously outlined and identified, which is Russia's actually failing in many ways from their perspective. And they're not making the accomplishments. I hate to use that word because it sounds positive and all of this is very negative, but they're not making the gains that they had hoped and that many people expected they would. Reading from NBC News, Russian President Vladimir Putin has overwhelmingly more firepower, manpower, and naval supremacy and favorable geography than Ukraine. So the world has been shocked that he has failed to demonstrate military dominance in the first few days of his invasion of Ukraine. The Russian military has not only performed more poorly than expected, but it has made blunders that have been ably exploited by Ukraine's defenders and the steadfast leadership exhibited by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. So what is uh, making the point right there is that the reason people are so shocked by Ukraine's force and their strength and courage in this moment is because by every objective measurement, Russia has a 
massively more dominant military. And so when you hypothetically sketched out a situation before this current moment that we're in, where Russia invades Ukraine, most people would say, based on the supremacy of either military, just in pure strength, uh, resources, capabilities, Russia would be able to dominate easily. But because of some reasons we're going to get into here in just a second, that is not happening. They're not effectively using the force of their military to do what they probably had hoped to do with this invasion. So next, I want to look at a article that, that was written up about five reasons why Russian forces are struggling in Ukraine so that we can kind of start getting a sense of why is it that with this dominant military, they're not doing as well as they had hoped. So the first reason this article lays out and Apologies, this is from Defense One. Putin told basically no one, not even his generals, his true intentions. Hints that Russian leader Vladimir Putin kept his true plan for Ukraine mostly to himself have been trickling out on social media for days. So one of the things that they identify in this portion of the analysis is that Putin wasn't actually prepping with people close to him, with his generals, with military leaders, and with the public to the level that you would need to, to quote unquote, successfully pull off a, a potential overtake of another country. Because he pretended, is what they suspect, that there was some other intention and some other plan with what they were doing, but then it turned out to be an all-out war he wanted to wage. And so, because he didn't effectively communicate to the people around him that that was his plan, there was no way for them to properly prep all of the aspects of the military, of the um, Russian population sentiment, all those things that you would need to do the level of, I don't want to, not damage, but conquering. You do the level of conquering that they were intending. The next point they lay out is, this is not the fight they planned for. Leading up to the invasion, analysts had painted a portrait of a modernized, well-trained Russian military, but that has not been on display in the war's first days. Again, if the generals weren't on board, if the generals weren't properly prepped, how are they going to prepare the Russian military? Plus, we've seen some level of confusion, lack of motivation among the military members, even just all the way to the ground level where they don't really know why they're fighting this. So how could they possibly be as effective as they can be? Third reason they lay out is they got overconfident. Quote, if you look at how they launched their attacks, they clearly expected that to happen through a quick and pretty bloodless campaign coincide on Tuesday. Again, just like the rest of the world had kind of expected, just like many military analysts had expected, if Russia was going to do this, they thought it was going to go off pretty quickly and Russia within weeks would be able to take over much of Ukraine. Again, that's not what we've seen happen. And so they likely were overconfident with the expectations of what was going to happen. And then fourth, they say they have held back their air power. Russia has not used the full extent of its air power in Ukraine and that Ukrainians are still able to conduct their own air operations and launch air defense capabilities. A senior defense official told Pentagon reports Tuesday. So just military incompetence or bad military decision making. And finally, Europe's surprising response. Putin may have shored up Russian currency to withstand sanctions, but there's no way he could have predicted uh, Europe's strong response, several analysts said. In a matter of days, German opposition to bulking up its defense spending melted away, and the country has pledged to quickly raise its military budget to 2% of GDP. Russian aircraft are banned from the European Union's entire airspace. And this is something that I think is huge as well. Number one credit should go to the Ukrainian 
people, to Volodymyr Zelensky, to Ukrainian leadership and Ukraine as a whole for standing up so strong with such courage uh, to protect their home. Also, you can give a lot of the blame to Russian incompetence. And then additionally, I do think it's apt to recognize how strong the West's support of Ukraine has been. And that is undeniably made a big difference. And so to sum it up, Putin seems to have attempted to pull this off in a manner that was unplanned, unprepared, which you can't do leading into such a war. The Russian people around him, as in leadership, and the Russian people at whole don't have their hearts in this mission to the level that they would need to to be successful. Ukraine has stood strong. The West has backed Ukraine with a lot of strength. And all of that sums up, I may have missed some points, but generally that sums up to a massive failure so far on the part of Russia. Again, every day lives are being lost. Every day Russia is causing carnage. So this isn't like a hooray moment. This is terrible, everything that's happening. But within the context of a war that's going on and us hoping that Ukraine, that Ukraine can stand through it, uh, there are good indicators to that effect. And I just want to keep giving all the thoughts, all of the um, hopeful energy to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian people to keep standing so strong with such courage to defend their home. After the leaked Supreme Court ruling over Roe v. Wade or the, the draft opinion over Roe v. Wade. And then, of course, once it was actually overturned, uh, not to mention the landslide of other negative rulings that have come down recently from the Supreme Court, we saw a sharp spike in the percentage of America that disapproved of the Supreme Court. So as you can see here in this graphic, this is measuring from a YouGov Yahoo News poll, the percentage of Democrats, percentages of uh, Americans at, at large, and then of course, percentage of Republicans who say they have no confidence in the Supreme Court. So if you look at this, it could seem confusing because the percentage of Democrats is going up, but that's because it's the amount of Democrats who say, I have none zero confidence in the Supreme Court. And May 23rd, Democratic feelings to that effect was only at 30%. So only 30% of Democrats said, I have no confidence in the Supreme Court. Today, it's all the way up to above 50% of Democrats who believe that. Among all Americans, it was around 25% on May 23rd who said, I have no confidence in the Supreme Court. And now it's all the way up to pretty much 40% of Americans who say, I have no confidence in the Supreme Court. And the reason why that phrasing is important, because this isn't saying, do you generally approve or disapprove of the Supreme Court? Or are you happy with their rulings? That's not what this is asking, because we've seen it's over 50% of people who disapprove of the specific Roe v. Wade decision. This is asking people, do you have any any confidence in our Supreme Court right now? And 50-something percent of Democrats and 40% of Americans broadly say, nope, or uh, I have absolutely zero confidence. And that is wild. And it shows the way that the Supreme Court is not representative, not that it is a democratic body. It's not. Obviously, it's appointed by representatives, but the actual Supreme Court justices themselves are not serving a constituency. But it does represent this stray away from the opinions and the values of the Supreme Court justices from the opinions and values of Americans broadly, because so many conservative justices have been put in the court. So with this in mind, uh, the Democrats are under, under justified pressure to act and they should have acted a long time ago, obviously, because we've seen this movement of pro-life people, conservative people trying to invest 
time, energy, and capital into getting justices on the court who represent their views. And so it's enraging whenever Democrats just sit on their butt until something bad happens and then go, oh, I guess we should maybe try to do something now. And oftentimes they don't even do something then. But what do I mean specifically when I say the Democrats are under pressure to act? Well, one of the things that people have been calling for uh, for a long time is for the Democrats to enshrine abortion rights into the Constitution. What that would do is make it federal law that states have to respect women's right to choose. It would pretty much be Roe v. Wade, but in law form and not in a constitutional ruling. And it would take it out of the hands of the exclusive power of the Supreme Court. Even at times when Democrats had much larger margins in the House, in the Senate, and they had the presidency, namely under Obama, this wasn't accomplished, uh, which led to what we're experiencing today. But it's not too late. At any point now, we could make it, in theory, federal law that states have to respect abortion rights. We don't need the Supreme Court for that. We could do that with our Congress. Uh, but And the Democrats have the power to do that because they have power in the White House, House of Representatives, and the Senate. So what's standing in the way? Well, you guessed it, the filibuster. I know the filibuster is talked about constantly, so most of you likely are very familiar with the specifics of it, but occasionally I get people who say, I actually don't know exactly what the filibuster is. Could you refresh my memory. So let's just quickly do that. Originally, you needed a majority to pass something. So for example, in the Senate, 50 votes would allow you to pass something, right? Same thing in the House. But then at some point, someone came up with the idea of like, before we pass something, we're required to have an open dialogue, a debate among uh, senators or congresspeople about the thing that we're about to uh, vote on. And there's no rule laid out that says we can't just continue that debate forever. So if we continued talking and I just talked and talked and talked and never concluded the debate portion of this process, then we could never move to the next part of the process, which is actually voting on the piece of legislation. So when they came up with that, it became a thing where if a party or a member of a party really didn't want something to get passed, they would go up and stand and just talk monologue for hours upon hours. And we've seen funny representations of that in different forms of media where you're working so hard and it could be admirable in some situations up there talking until you have to pee into a bottle or something and you just never go. Okay. Well then people within the government were like, okay, this is kind of annoying. I don't like every time a piece of legislation comes up that there's any opposition to, we have to sit and listen to someone talk for hours to try to block it. So how about this? We can come up with a new process where we just have to get 60 votes and then it has to conclude the debate section. So you would not be able to just talk infinitely. So that became the new process. As you can see, this isn't constitutional. This is just them coming up with rules for their own processes. So then it was like, now if there's opposition and someone says, hey, talk indefinitely if you tried to pass this, then they go, cool. We, if we can get 60 votes, then we skip that. We don't have to go up against someone who's going to talk indefinitely. If we can get 60 votes, it's not going to pass pretty much. So what does that do effectively? That brings it from a majority needed in these chambers to 60 votes. It actually started at 66, but it got brought down to 60 at one point. Well, that's weird. Now, just all of a sudden, 60 votes are needed in the Senate to pass something bizarre. Well, that's where it sits today, where to pass any piece of legislation that isn't 
wildly bipartisan. You and, and what I mean by that, to pass a piece of legislation that does have some level of opposition against it, you have to get 60 votes. Otherwise, someone will raise their hand and say, I would filibuster this. And so that means it would not be able to get passed unless you have enough votes to overcome my filibuster. There's no actual filibuster filibustering going on. They're not actually getting up and talking indefinitely. They're just saying, in theory, I filibuster this. So now you have to get 60 votes to overcome that filibuster. So super, super silly. Doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. All that did is arbitrarily bring the amount of votes needed in the Senate up to 60 votes instead of being at 50, which makes more logical sense in a democracy. Okay. Well, where we sit today, for most pieces of legislation, you need 60 votes, like I said, to overcome the filibuster. But you can do something because all of this is just Senate rules. You can vote with just a majority to change the Senate rules and make it to where on particular issues or on all issues, you abolish the filibuster, you create a carve out, and therefore on that particular issue, only 50 votes are needed. So Mitch McConnell did this on judges, where now instead of 60 votes, you just need 50 votes to confirm a federal judge. So what people are pushing for is for the Democrats to do a similar thing with abortion rights. We're going to make a carve out where on abortion rights, you only need 50 votes to pass a piece of legislation. Great. Sounds good, right? Who's, who's standing in the way of that? Well, two Democratic senators who have become the king and queen of preventing progress. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. Arizona Democrat Senator Kirsten Cinema poured cold water Thursday on the Democrats' hopes to codify Roe v. Wade by reforming the Senate filibuster to get around the 60-vote threshold otherwise needed to pass such legislation. So Joe Biden came out and said, you know what, even though I've been against changing the filibuster for much of my career, I would be for a carve-out where we can do a 50-vote margin on abortion rights. Kirsten Cinema says, no, sir. Uh, well, a confirmation on that. CNN anchor Anna Cabrera reported that Cinema's office told her that despite President Joe Biden supporting such an effort, the senator is still opposed to gutting the filibuster on any topic, including on reproductive rights. <sighs> and then her little teammate, Joe Manchin. Cinema's announcement comes after moderate West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin made a similar comment. Quote, I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade into law. And the way to do that is to make sure Congress votes to do that. Biden said Wednesday while attending a NATO summit in Europe. So I agree with uh, Biden on that. The way that we codify Roe v. Wade into law is by creating a carve out for the filibuster, giving Congress the ability to actually pass this codification. But Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema stand against that. And that puts us in a place where we pretty much now have 0% chance of getting that protection enshrined into law. So unfortunately, we are watching rights be stripped away and the Democrats can't muster the strength or courage to protect Americans. And as with many other issues, the two Democrats standing in the way of making progress in America are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. All of us now understand that it is somewhat hard to get people to change their mind on Trump. <laughs> somewhat hard to say the least. It seems like whatever he does, supporters of him just stick by his side and don't ask questions. So when the January 6th committee began, there was a large question around if they would really be able to make a difference and damage Trump and expose the truth about Trump. And I'll be honest, even I wasn't sure if they would have any real effect because I've watched time and time again as people dig in their heels, even when concerning details come out about Trump or Trump takes actions that I would think would turn off people 
to supporting him. But shockingly, because the revelations coming out of these hearings have been so massive and destructive to Trump, the political tides actually do seem to be shifting. We're about to watch uh, a Republican senator say we could have a better candidate than Trump in 2024, which in the Republican Party is sacrilegious to suggest anyone should be Lord Emperor of that party besides Trump. But before we do that, I'll just remind you something we previously looked at, uh, reading from Associated Press, about half of Americans believe former President Donald Trump should be charged with a crime for his role in the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6th, 2021, a new poll suggests. So that's a shift in public opinion. Over half of Americans say he should be criminally charged. So that's not saying over half of Americans say they disapprove of him. No, that's the most extreme feeling you could have about a politician is I think they should be in jail or at least criminally charged for actions they took while they were in power. That's massive. And that might be contributing to why we're seeing a little bit, if not a large bit of shift on the conservative side of politics about their feelings in regard to Trump. Even people on Fox News, some hosts on Fox News, we've been seeing shift a little bit on how they talk about this and start recognizing and accepting that Trump really did do some bad stuff in the lead up to January 6th, on January 6th, attempting to overturn the lawful election results. And then now what we're looking at today is Republican Senator Pat Toomey on Bloomberg uh, expressing the sentiment that Trump may not be the right candidate for the Republican Party. Let's take a look. Well, let me ask you one political question, if I yeah. may. Uh, you've been outspoken about what happened in the January 6th. Putting aside what you're hearing in the in the hearings right now, do you think that this effectively means that Donald J. Trump won't get to run for a second term? Oh, I don't know that it means that. I mean, he gets to decide whether he's going to yeah, run, yeah. Uh, whether or not he's successful. Look, I, I think he disqualified himself from serving in public office by virtue of his post-election behavior, especially leading right up to January 6th. I think the revelation... And to be fair, Pat Toomey has been, as this host identified, more outspoken than others, but feeling free to come out and start saying this, and we're seeing... Again, on Fox News, the sentiment a little bit more expressed. It may be more common among Republicans than it was before. ...from this committee um, make his path to even the Republican nomination much more tenuous. Um, you know, never say never. And, and he decides whether to throw his hat in the, in the ring. But uh, I think we'll have a stronger candidate. I think we'll have a stronger... Whoa, sorry about that. A stronger candidate than Trump. So I I agree, even just from a strategy point of view, if I was a Republican strategist, Trump's not the right guy. Now, unfortunately, it's not like option two for the Republican Party. The backup to Trump is amazing. Any other person's going to be very unhinged because the current Republican base is, I, I, I with all the respect in the world to the individuals that I know who are part of this, it's pretty unhinged. Some wild views uh, going on. So that's going to be reflected in the individuals that rise to irrelevance and to influence in the Republican Party. So it's not, yay, Trump's gone and now we get a normal, uh, regular, moderate Republican. No, it's still going to be radical. But we do want to at least end the political relevance, the political influence, uh, and the political power of Trump 
for good. A fascinating piece of information came out of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, and it wasn't so much her testimony, but a piece of information that Liz Cheney shared with us at the end of it, where she expressed or articulated the fact that people had been reaching out to individuals who were going to testify, who were planning on testifying in front of the January 6th committee, and effectively threatening them or reminding them the possible repercussions of them telling the truth or uh, testifying. And so Liz Cheney outlined that they hadn't yet identified which individuals who testified this had happened to, but they told the story of these individuals getting phone calls where the person on the other side of the phone said, hey, you want to stay in the good graces of the Trump uh, you know, camp? Hey, he, he is going to be reading the transcripts of your testimony and we really hope you'll do the right thing during your testimony, suggesting that they maybe shouldn't share certain details, maybe shouldn't share the truth about what happened on January 6th. So that was kind of vaguely laid out by Liz Cheney at the end of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Then there was a moment on CNN where one of the CNN reporters, uh, broke down how they had also gotten sources telling them that this was happening and this is confirmed that potential testifiers in the January 6th committee and who are going to testify in front of the January 6th committee are getting phone calls of a somewhat threatening nature about the information that they're going to share. So let's take a look at this revelation on CNN. Some important new reporting this hour on the January 6th committee and at least one of its witnesses. Sources now tell CNN the panel's star witness from the other day, the former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, was contacted by former colleagues in an attempt to influence her testimony. CNN's Caitlin Polans is with us in leading this reporting. Uh, this would be a wow. What do you know? It would indeed. So Cassidy Hutchinson did tell the committee that she was contacted by someone attempting to influence her testimony. This is being confirmed now by Casey Hunt, Ryan Noble, Zach Cohen, all of our colleagues doing this great reporting. And this is something right now that is fleshing out a mystery that Liz Cheney teed up at this hearing on Tuesday. On Tuesday, as Cassidy Hutchinson is sitting there at the end of the testimony, Liz Cheney turns and says she raises this specter of witness tampering. And she describes that the committee, as they're bringing witnesses in, has been asking them, has anyone contacted you? Has any former colleagues contacted you? Can you tell us about any attempts to impact your testimony? And Cheney did not reveal the, what, who the witnesses were. We can say now one was, was Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, but both witnesses that Cheney gave examples of uh, received phone calls. And these phone calls, uh, Cheney quoted them being things like people saying, uh, telling witnesses, do the right thing. Uh, you want to stay in good graces in the Trump world. Trump does read transcripts of these hearings. Make sure you're aware of that. Another call someone received uh, was that someone was saying to the witness that he, an unnamed person, wants me to let you know he's thinking about you and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. So we don't have more information about exactly which one of these examples Cassidy Hutchinson is, but she did sit for four closed door depositions with the committee. And it is something that the committee has promised they'll return to. And I'm, I'm guessing we don't know the answer to this question what yet. Uh, Congresswoman Cheney, the vice chair, did promise this would come up at a further hearing. Do we know in her in Cassidy Hutchinson's case who the phone call was from? We don't at this time. So 
Unidentified individuals are calling people, including Cassie Hutchinson and other individuals who testified in front of the January 6th committee before their testimony and saying, do the right thing. We're going to be watching. Trump reads transcripts. You don't want to fall out of the good graces of the Trump camp. And even though none of that's incriminating at all, you know, well, mm, the, the, there's a okay witness tampering is the the particular phrasing could be perfectly fine if it wasn't within the context that we know it to be i guess that's the way to say it so if i was giving a friend advice or talking to a friend before they testified maybe i would say i'm gonna be watching do the right thing you know like completely harmlessly but because it's coming from the trump camp it could be incriminating because witness tampering is a very serious uh crime and if they're trying to influence people not to say certain things to bend certain details to trump's favor that would be witness tampering but it would be very very hard to nail someone down on that hopefully as they identified in that video we might be learning more about these interactions and these phone calls to see if it does rise to the level of witness tampering that concludes today's podcast thank you so much for listening don't forget to leave a five-star rating and a review and i'll see you tomorrow